Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by BetterHelp. BetterHelp is a mental health platform that provides direct online counseling and therapy services via web or phone text communication. You don't even need to use flu powder in order to access a therapist through BetterHelp. I think we can all tell in book five that if you keep your feelings bottled up, it can start to affect you negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off of your chest if you don't have access to Dumbledore's office. I know in my life, therapy has helped me identify patterns to help me interrupt ones that I don't feel like are healthy and find better ways to cope. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash sacred text today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash sacred text. Chapter 31, The Battle of Hogwarts, continued. And then he skidded round a final corner, and with a yell of mingled relief and fury he saw them, Ron and Hermione, both their arms full of large, curved, dirty yellow objects, Ron with a broomstick under his arm. I'm Casper Terkyle. And I'm Vanessa Zoltan. And this is Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. I'm reading the local group this week because I love the name. It's called Harry Potter and the Zoom of Requirements. (laughs) And it's led by Brittany Olette. And I want to join it just for the name. I cannot believe that I haven't named our Tuesday night class the Zoom of Requirements. Like, what a missed opportunity. Why am I bad at this? That is amazing. Also, it reminds me of the modiste in Bridgerton. I feel like she would say Harry Potter and the Zoom of the requirements. Wee <laughs> oui, wee. Oui. And if you remember, as Casper and I were doing Lectio Divina a couple of weeks ago, we realized that we want to hold space for our community and all of the grief around COVID. And so what we've decided to do is that for the months of January, February, and March, we're going to be collecting names from our community members who have lost people due to COVID. If you've lost someone to COVID and would like for us to say their name and honor them on the podcast, please go to our website, harrypottersacredtext.com and fill out the form. I'm really glad we're doing this, Vanessa. It just feels like a small way in which we can contribute to the the really necessary grieving in the midst of this horrible, horrible pandemic. So for my story this week, Vanessa, 
I want to tell you about my undergraduate thesis, which I wrote about a fascinating man called Gerard Winstanley. Now, he was a 17th century Englishman from Lancashire. And, you know, in his early life, you would never have known anything about him. He was an apprentice tailor, very, very ordinary. But in the 1640s, England went through a civil war. And if you've heard the name Oliver Cromwell, you might know that he led a parliamentary army and actually ended up beheading the king, which, you know, at the time when people believed that kings and queens were put in charge of a country as a sign of God, right, as as a representative of God, this wasn't just the killing of an individual. It was the destruction of a, a whole way of thinking about the world and about how hierarchies work and the way of life. And so as that civil war breaks out, Gerard becomes radicalized in this really interesting way. And this is also the time when the Quakers and the Shakers and all of these other kind of new religious movements are happening. And he ends up becoming involved in a movement of diggers. If you like folk songs or if you've been in like TikTok sea shantyland, you might know the digger song. Definitely check it out. But essentially what he starts doing is writing these tracts. He has these visions of a world reformed, of of a kind of a religious revival, but also an economic transformation. So he starts to talk about the redistribution of land, the, the common ownership of property. And he gets so into this vision that he starts an experiment in a little village called St. George's Hill. He brings together a small number of people and they try to live out this kind of communal life which is radically, radically different from everything around them. And the neighboring towns freak out so much that they actually send in hired henchmen to like beat up the people living in this commune to destroy their crops, to destroy their property. And of course, Gerard is totally heartbroken, but they carry on, they try again in a different location, the same thing happens. And what's so sad or maybe beautiful, I I don't know, but at the end of this kind of radical period of hope and possibility and and experimenting, the last thing we really know about Gerard is he writes this letter to Oliver Cromwell and says, I tried to change the world. It didn't work. Maybe you, as someone who has a lot of power, can do that. And he kind of disappears into history. He lives for another 30 years, goes back to being a tailor and a shoemaker, and we, we don't really hear from him again. And so the reason why I thought of him as we're reading our chapter through survival again this week is... What happens when part of you dies, maybe an idea of who you were or a sense of yourself dies, but you survive? Casper, thank you so much for teaching me about this person who I had never heard of. What the story has made me think of is this like constant battle between a life well lived and a legacy. I think about that also with Fred in this chapter, right? He has this beautiful death that I think will will mean something because he died fighting and he died fighting alongside his brothers for something that mattered. And I would imagine that there will be a plaque up at Hogwarts in his honor. And But I would rather he just survive. But there's something about this story where you're inverting that idea that, you know, this man would have rather his legacy survive than he survived. And I find it more compelling, I think, just because it happened 400 years ago, I'm like, oh, yeah, maybe so, which I, I wonder about that thought experiment. If something is long enough ago, am I like, no, no, the idea should have survived, not the person. Well, and it's interesting with Fred, because, of course, he's a fictional character. I know that's hard for us to believe. But 
you know, we'll never get that kind of time distance from a, a work of fiction, right? Like reading this chapter will always feel like now, whatever year we're reading it in. So in some ways, it's impossible for Fred's death to feel distant in the way that Jared Winstanley's life and death feels so distant from us. And it's so present that we'll actually encounter it in our 30-second recap of the second half of this chapter. Will you go first? Happily. I'll count you in. Here we go. Three, two, one. So it turns out that Ron thought of this basilisk thing that can destroy the Horcruxes and Hermione smash Hufflepuff's cup. And um, then Ron is like, oh, what about the house elves? We have to save them. And Hermione and he kiss, 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 kiss. <laughs> and her, and Harry's like, guys, come on, we have stuff to do. And they go into the room of requirement. And so do Crabbe and Goyle and Draco. And they like shoot to kill. And then there's a fiend fire and they get out. And it turns out that the last, that the diadem was destroyed, but also either Crabbe or Goyle died. Yeah, I couldn't tell you the difference between them either. Well, it's Rosencrantz and Guildenstern. Like, you can't write about them for seven books and have them be the same person and then have me separate them in a moment of crisis. Like, this isn't the moment. I feel like they need outfits. Like, one always wears red and one always wears green. But even then, like, I still wouldn't know which is which. Yeah. Uh, R.I.P. <laughs> okay, are you ready to... Talk about something other than the kiss. <laughs> All right, bring it on. On your mark, get set, go. Okay, so um, Harry's running around. He finally sees Ron Hermione. It's amazing. And then there's a magic kiss, but then they have to go into the room of requirement. And then they're stunning and fighting and there's Avada Kedavras and it's very stressful. And then there's a fire that's coming and it's really terrifying fire. And um, and the, the fire starts lapping at Harry's heels and he's like, okay, get a broom. And they, so they fly, flying around because the diadem is still there, but the diadem in the fire destroy. Um, and then they grab uh, um, um, Malfoy by the hand and they fly out on the broom and uh, crash, boom, and Fred dies. Also, Dolohov is fighting. Maybe Kingsley, too. Remember when we thought we could do this whole chapter in one episode and it turns out that we, like, can't even do it in two? Yeah, maybe we should start a whole podcast just about this chapter. I think there would be enough to talk about, honestly. Yes. So, Vanessa, our conversation continues on the theme of survival. And the thing that I've been thinking about, especially in the context of COVID, is that it's not just that I miss seeing the friends that I can't see, right? Family far away, friends that are far away. It's that I miss the me that I am when I'm with those friends. It's like that part of me hasn't survived the pandemic. And I I like that me more <laughs> than the me that I am now most of the time. And it just feels like that part of me has really been lost. So I'm thinking about that in the context of this chapter because I wonder where we can see that sense of like a part of you not surviving in the characters in this chapter. I think the place to look most closely in the text at that is Draco, mm. because Draco seems to be someone who really does not know who he is, right? Draco knows certain things about himself. He knows that he has a relationship with his mother in which he is entitled to her wand in, I think, quite a beautiful way. But he had this idea of himself as Crabbe and Goyle's leader, and that's gone in this moment. Yeah. I mean, we literally see in the text, Crabbe turns on Malfoy and, and says to him, I don't take orders from you. Like the relationship hasn't survived. It's always been about power. It's not about friendship. And now that Malfoy's family is out of favor and, and Crabbe has more of that power in the eyes of Voldemort, like it totally changes the dynamic of their friendship, if we can even call it that. Yeah. And so I guess the thing that I would say is that 
none of our senses of self stay the same. Emily Nagowski, who is a sociologist who writes a lot about body positivity, says something along the lines of all of our bodies change. It's inevitable. Like the best case scenario is that our bodies age and wrinkle and droop, right? Like that's the goal. (laughs) And I think that we have to think of our senses of self in the same way. When the world forces us to be a different version of ourselves, I think that grief is like a completely reasonable response. And, you know, and one of the stages of grief is anger, right? Like these are all complicated things. I'm not saying just take it on the chin and suck it up, but it's inevitable. I was just thinking this morning, I'm in my late 30s, which I think some people would call middle age, and I've been able to avoid saying that to myself until I turn 40, but I'm going to be 40 so soon. And like, how am I going to think of myself as a middle-aged person? Mm. I never thought that I would still be so bad at doing dishes as a middle-aged person, (laughs) but I think something is clean and then I take it out of the cupboard and I'm like, this is not clean. So... I just think that this is entirely human and obviously it happens in bigger and smaller ways and something like war will really do this to us. But I think it's a completely human thing. I love that idea that it's like droopy, you know, wrinkles. That's actually like, that's the point because in the midst of this chapter, survival is not assured, right? That like slow aging process is not guaranteed. And so that's why we have this moment where Hermione just like plants this huge kiss on Ron's lips and because it's now or never. And like, I don't want to say that the war is worth the moment of the kiss. (laughs) You have your priorities. I have mine, Casper. (laughs) But but it really is because they don't have that confidence that they're both going to survive. Absolutely. I mean, Ron says it, right? Like, Harry is like, there's a war happening. And Ron is like, yeah, it's now or never, isn't it? I mean, we can talk about it in terms of their identities shifting and surviving. Three books ago, Ron did not know what to do with his feelings for Hermione. He was just a jerk about it. You know, he like wouldn't even admit it to himself. And now he not only has admitted it to himself, but he's just like waiting for her and loving her. Mm. I just love that he waits for her to kiss him first. There have probably been so many moments where he has wanted to kiss her. And I think especially Ron has this like really complicated relationship with masculinity, you know, which we've seen earlier in this book with when he destroys the Horcrux. And yet he still just has not rushed this moment at all. And I think it's also so important because Hermione gets to choose it, which in the end is so good for his ego, right? Like she super chooses him. And so I feel like it's just a reward of his maturation process. And again, like because he survived, right? Because he didn't die in the Ministry of Magic and the Department of Mysteries and, you know, in any number of other times he could have died. He got to mature and this moment got to happen. And so I just love everything about this kiss. I love everything about this kiss. (laughs) I love that Hermione like finally goes for it when Ron, I don't think she's been explicitly waiting for him to change, but he just says, and I agree with her, the sexiest thing in the world, which is like concern for something he didn't (laughs) used to have concern about. There's just like nothing sexier than a man getting on board with something you care about. Ugh, this kiss is amazing. It's everything. 
The thing that suddenly strikes me here is that we've been looking at like Ron's maturation over time up to this point. But the fact that it's Hermione kissing Ron to me also has something to say about the survival of their relationship into the future, right? Like he hasn't moved too early. He hasn't tried to like seal the deal. And it's Hermione who who steps into this like whole new level of romance together. It helps me understand, honestly, why they are still together 19 years later, right? I'd always, certainly as a younger person, when I read the epilogue, I was kind of skeptical of that. But this helps me understand that. Like it's the right moment for this romantic union to happen. I mean, Ron demonstrates in the second half of this book that he's a really different person than he was in the first several books, right? That's right. In Goblet of Fire, he only apologizes to Harry after Harry almost dies. Whereas in book seven, there's no big moment that gets him to come back and apologize. He just immediately realizes, oh man, I want to apologize. I shouldn't have done that. And like, even just that is a huge evolution. And so we just don't get to spend time with 17, 18 year old mature Ron. But we see in the second half of this book that he's just like really grown into this thoughtful person, right? He's gotten more engaged in the strategy and planning with this basilisk idea. He's showing concern. He's showing the ability to forgive. Like he's showing patience, just like all of these things that we sort of wanted him to show it was clear that he was he was a kid and now he's growing up into this really wonderful man hashtag team ron uh i'm just so happy for them so i want to ask you a question which is as hermione and ron destroy the horcrux i feel like the horcruxes want to survive and they will do whatever it takes to try and distract or, or dissipate the threat that someone brings right And so we saw when Ron destroyed the locket, he has these kind of horrible visions that he sees. And we know that Hermione destroys the cup. What do you think she sees when she does that? You know, we know that if something came to Hermione, Ron would have seen it also, just like Harry also saw what Ron saw. So I don't have an answer for you, except to say that it's never occurred to me to wonder. And that now I wonder if that's part of why they kiss. That makes so much sense. That if it was like this really vulnerable thing that now they've both seen and like can't unsee. And so now there's just less to be scared about. I don't know. What I imagine was that it was her parents and maybe her parents dying or, or never being able to find them again or something that makes her feel like Ron is not just a friend or a crush, but like that Ron is family that this is her family now. And so that's why the kiss kind of has this extra meaning for her and that she's making that choice. But I don't know. Yeah. Or if it's a vision of like Ron yelling at her, right? Then he's like, oh, I am the most important person in Mm. her life. And then she's thinking he now knows that. Yeah. Okay. We've been avoiding it. Let's go into the room of requirement. Into the Zoom of requirement. So a lot of holes in the plot struck me. And can we start there? Only if we do sacred readings of them. Yeah. No, but like, help me read it sacredly. So I got distracted by the fact that Harry says Voldemort thought he was the only person who knew about this room. But we also know that stuff has been hiding in this room for hundreds of years. And when you go into this room, you see all the crap in the closet. So how did Voldemort think that? Like, that just doesn't make any sense. So my only possible sacred reading is that this is a thought that Harry's projecting onto Voldemort. Mm. Like, oh, Voldemort thought he was the only one who knew, but I know too. Voldemort couldn't have thought that he was the only one who knew about this room. 
Yeah, reading it this time, that really struck me too. And I guess the place that my mind went was like, right, you find what you need when you enter the room of requirement. And so what Voldemort found was like an empty chest and there are drawers and like little storage nooks for your Horcrux jewelry, that that's all he finds. But because Harry has this bigger mission or he's looking for something else or his intention is different, he ends up seeing like the complete storage unit of everything that's ever been put there. Yeah, but Draco saw it the way that Harry saw it. Draco is like, I hung out in this room of lost things all last year. Yeah, I mean, maybe it has something to do with the fact that, like, Draco doesn't have the same intentionality as Voldemort, right? Like, he's not he's not as evil. And so maybe, maybe there's less restrictions from the room in terms of what he's able to see. Yeah, and so if, to your point, Casper, like, Voldemort can't see the full room of requirement or the full, as Draco calls it, like the Hall of Lost Things, right? That shows a difference between Draco and Voldemort and maybe Crab and Goyle and they get to see this room, this version of the room because they go in with Draco. I mean, we know that the room has like very specific magic around it. So maybe that's it. I also don't understand in book four... Mad-Eye Moody slash Barty Crutch Jr. teaches the kids that there's no avoiding the Avada Kedavra curse. And here we see Ron and Hermione dodge it like it is a bullet in slow motion. But I don't think we can trust Barty Crouch to, like, be a good teacher, right? That was never his role. Maybe he had some useful info to share, but, like, he is not a trustworthy source. Sure. But I also feel like there's something else here in terms of the mystery of magic. I mean, if you think about how, certainly for children, but even for many adults, the way in which we think about something like God, for example, so often becomes essentialized to being like a white bearded man in the sky with a trident, which is so far away from what good theology is all about. Like, it's not even a simplification. It's literally wrong (laughs) in terms of, of what the idea and the experience is supposed to be about. And part of me feels like moving a feather across a table is the same kind of simplification or essentialization of magic and that there's actually these layers and depths and complexities to magic which go way beyond what you're able to learn in the classroom. And so I feel like we don't fully understand what magic is or actually how it works, even for someone graduating from Hogwarts. And I think that's kind of an answer to both of your questions, like both the room of requirement, but also the the Avada Kedavra curse and Barty's teaching. Yeah, you're saying I'm bad at magic. That's fair. I am bad at magic, or I'd be better at doing the dishes. Well, let me teach you this little spell, Cleanus Totalus Maximus. <laughs> <laughs> Life is full of awesome what ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by Redfin. Let's say for some reason, you can't get back to Grimmauld Place, so you need to find a new home. If you're like me, you would go to Redfin. 
Redfin updates their listings every two minutes and sends you personalized recommendations. So finding the home that's perfect for you has never been easier. If you see something you like, just book a tour straight from the app. And when you're ready to buy, an experienced local Redfin agent can guide you through the whole process. And if you're looking to sell, Redfin agents know how to get you the best price possible for your home. That's because they sell twice as many homes as other agents. With a listing fee as low as 1%, Redfin's fees are half of what others often charge, which means you'll have more money to put toward your next home. They even have a function where Trelawney will tell you whether or not she can see you in this house. Redfin. It's how Molly found the burrow. Download the Redfin app to get started. But now let's like really go into the room of requirement. So they're in there and Crab and Goyle and Draco come in and there is this horrible standoff where Crab and Goyle reveal just really the depths of their, I don't want to call it evil, but like, right, like they're they're fighting to kill their fellow classmates. And we see Draco do the same move again that we saw him do at the beginning of book seven and at the end of book six, where he can't quite interrupt it. He's not trying to stun Crab and Goyle, but nor is he joining them. And so the The question I have for you, I I mean, I think I can make the argument that, like, a little bit of Draco's humanity is surviving. But is it enough? He's standing by. He is just doing nothing again and again. And this is really the third time that we are just watching him let something evil unfold without inserting himself into it. And so I'm just wondering how you can help me forgive Draco and wonder if something in him survives that's worth respecting. I'm not sure we should forgive him, or at least I I don't think we can expect him to be forgiven without some element of accountability and justice. You know, I'm usually such a like Draco Malfoy is my boyfriend kind of guy. But at this point, I am so disappointed and disheartened in him. I don't know what survived in him in terms of certainly not in terms of integrity, but even in terms of like directionality. Like, is he hoping that he's somehow going to like save his family through this action and then gets turned on by Crab and Goyle? And he's had so many chances at this point. I mean, most importantly, at book six, you know, at the very end, Dumbledore gives him a way out. He gives him a pathway to step out of the situation that he's in and he doesn't choose it. So I I find it very difficult to be very forgiving to Draco in this moment. What it seems as though he wants is to not be responsible for what happens, Mm. but he doesn't care about what happens as long as he doesn't have to feel bad about it. Right. Seems to me like a metaphor for whiteness. Oh, absolutely. And I think in the fandom, sometimes there's a leniency with Draco and there's a, a, a maybe that sense of forgiveness with Draco because we can see that he knows what's right. But actually, at this point, I feel like, well, if you know what's right and you still don't do it, in some ways, we should be even harsher about that. Because he had the choice. He had the opportunity. He knows what to do and he just doesn't do it. You know, it's so hard because I do think that he's in an abusive dynamic. Certainly, I think Narcissa is, right? And Draco is very young. And yet, so is Harry. (laughs) 
like Harry grew up in an abusive dynamic and is very young. And I just wonder if I'm tired of not expecting anyone to be heroes. We all need to be heroes. And I think maybe I'm reading Draco like this because of the moment that we're in. I'm like, God, Draco's Mitch McConnell. He knows what's right and wrong. And he's just like choosing the easy way out forever Mm -hmm. and is ruining the world because of it. Like, I'm tired of not expecting more of people. And like, you can mess up and you can be scared and you can certainly not do everything and you have to take care of yourself, right? Like, I'm not saying like, be out on the front lines every single day, but like, you have to constantly be trying. These questions are not going away. Like, we don't get to let up. We get to take Sabbaths, but we don't get to stop trying. And the question is, right, and I think that this goes back to your point with Draco and Dumbledore, Often I feel like we're moved to an action because we really don't know what to do, or at least I am, right? I'm like, okay, I wrote to my congressperson, I donated, like, I I don't, like, what now? And so I feel like I'm not doing anything brave. But the question to me is when Dumbledore offers you, you don't have to do this. You have to be ready to take that moment. Yeah, it's it's hard. I mean, the other thing about Draco, of course, is that we might see... These easy choices, there's Dumbledore saying, do this. There's opportunities for him to, to turn on his own family. But he might feel not just the the kind of the presence of Voldemort and the dangers immediately that, that are presented to him and his family, because he has a dark mark. I mean, he can be traced wherever he is. But I think maybe I'm not giving him enough credit for the fact that he sees himself as his mother's protector also against his father. Like, we, we don't know enough about what's happening in that household. But I feel like the least we could ask of him is to not make things worse. And he chose to stay behind with Crab and Goyle here. In a way, I can't forgive that, at least not right now. I mean, he could he could have left the two of them behind and said, well, I'm going to find him because I think Harry's outside, you know, or something. It's painful to see this scene, honestly, with, with Draco. So before we end our theme conversation, we have to talk about Fred's death. I mean, first of all, I just want to talk about his like last moment that we see him in, which is this like very sweet moment with him and Percy, where Percy makes a joke and Fred is like, oh, my God, did you just make a joke? They just have this like lovely reconciliation moment that I'm just I'm really glad for for Percy's sake. Oh, I'm getting like emotional. Mm. But um, and for Fred's right, like that's a lovely last moment. But the thing that I want to point to is the moment where there's been this explosion and Harry feels blood on his face and like the wind from outside, which demonstrates to him that like the wall is gone. And then he hears the sound of screaming that couldn't be from physical pain, that it was such horrible screaming. Mm. I'm sure I've talked about this before, but when my friend died in high school, the sound her father made while burying her was... I mean, it was just the worst sound I've ever heard in my life. And that's a confrontation of the moments where the person just hasn't survived and you have to deal with that. And I feel like that's the sound that we hear at the end of this chapter. Yeah. I'm reminded so much about what Matt said about that the, the next 19 years of their lives, that we don't get that in these books. And it's actually what we need most so much because we also know that the grief and especially of losing a child First of all, of course, it, there are no words for it. 
And secondly, that it impacts people so differently or that they grieve so differently and it can pull families apart so quickly and so devastatingly. And so part of me is thinking about how Molly and Arthur are grieving and differently from George and differently from, you know, Ginny and Ron and and the whole rest of the family and the way in which it could pull them apart, that it's not just Fred's survival that comes to an end in his death, but it's actually the survival of their family unit that could fall apart. I mean, we see that in the last chapter, right? Like Ron Ron and Ginny are the only Weasley children who are sending their kids to Hogwarts. And like maybe Bill's kids have aged out, but given that Hogwarts is seven years, like it seems strange that none of the other Weasleys have kids there. And so like, I wonder if Bill and Fleur are sending their kid to Bobaton and any number of other things, but like, I don't want to send my kid to the place where my brother died. Oh my gosh, I'd never thought about that before. Yeah, it's like the old Hogwarts itself doesn't survive, right? Like that it's forever marked. This is the place where my uncle died or my brother died or my son died. It can't be the Hogwarts that it was um, before this battle. And not just not just for the Weasleys, for, for everyone. So Casper, we're doing Lectio Divina or Lexio, and I found a sentence for us. It's a long sentence, so I'm just going to have us do the first half of it up until the comma. Deeper and deeper into the labyrinth he went. So this is when Harry is going through the room of requirement. And it's not just like library stacks. Like that's how I'm imagining it. It's, it's not just rows of, of kind of easy to navigate stuff, but it's weird corners and nooks and crannies and, and dead ends. And so there's this sense of Harry kind of losing a sense of where he is and where Ron and Hermione are as well as he's walking. Yes. Five points. Ding, ding, ding. So step two is where we try to think of other stories that this reminds us of. So Deeper and deeper into the labyrinth he went. I mean, it reminds me of the other time we see Harry in a labyrinth in book four, right? Oh, I was thinking of book five in the Department of Mysteries. And Gringotts, if you think about it, trying to get out of the the banking system. Okay. So Harry going in labyrinths all the time. And it like never really works out well for him. Yeah. Stay away from labyrinths, Harry. I mean, it reminds me of this romance novel where I guess old, rich British families would have labyrinths like made of hedges in their yards because there wasn't TV. And so like that's what you did. And this woman gets disgraced by being caught in a bad situation with a man. And so she has to become a governess. And she's like taking care of these bratty kids and they, they know the labyrinth really well because they do it all the time, but they like get her lost in the labyrinth and run away and it's getting dark and it's like so scary and it's really dangerous because, you know, she could again be disgraced by being like caught alone. And so that's what it reminds me of. (laughs) I don't know if that's helpful. (laughs) I'm thinking of the wonderful novel by Madeline Miller, the retelling of the story of Circe, a witch herself, 
and that she is present at the birth of the the minotaur monster that later theseus overcomes with the help of ariadna right and there's this little thread that helps him find the way in and way out and it it's making me think about the danger not only in the labyrinth but also at the end of it or like at the center of it right who knows what kind of monster is awaiting for you so it's both the, the journey and the destination have have danger which of course is true for harry in the room of requirement Okay, so step three of Lectio, what does this remind us of in our own lives? Deeper and deeper into the labyrinth he went. So when Sean and I were in France, this is, gosh, nearly three years ago, we went to this beautiful ancient cathedral in Chartres. And, you know, it's it's famous for its labyrinth that's on the floor. And to my horror, most of the time is covered up by chairs. So you have to go on a Friday. So we got there on a Friday morning and we arrived in the cathedral and it's, you know, stunning vaulted ceilings. There's like stained glass windows, beautiful sculptures. And then on the labyrinth, which is different from a maze, right? Because a maze has dead ends and you can get lost. But a labyrinth, at least in, in a spiritual contemplative tradition, is just one pathway that continues, uh, but in an interesting pattern. So it's kind of like a walking meditation. So the people doing the walking meditation are all of these German tourists and they have, they've taken off their shoes and they're like closing their eyes and they're like lifting their hands and they're like fully in it. And so I'm looking at them being like, oh my God, this is so embarrassing. I would never do that. And then I'm like, okay, but we came here all the way. So I'm going to walk the labyrinth. And these, you know, these pieces of stone are 800 years old. I'll take off my shoes because then I can like, you know, connect with the vibes. So I I take off my shoes. I start walking and I, I put in some headphones and I start listening to this like gorgeous polyphony, right? So I'm I'm getting like in my mind, I'm starting to feel like I'm I'm in this ancient space and it's beautiful. And very quickly, I'm like walking slowly and I'm closing my eyes and I'm like raising my arms to like soak up the atmosphere. And I'm like, I have fully become one of the German tourists. But the thing was, it was so beautiful to do it because like Sean was next to me or near me, like walking the same path. And because it's just one path, you're not bumping into people. You don't have to navigate that. And you have to go really slowly because everyone is experiencing at the same time. So there's this sense of of calm, this sense of beauty. And when you close your eyes as you walk from it and then you open it, it's like you're taking a photograph in this incredible structure, right? This magical, beautiful cathedral. The beauty just soaks through you as, as you kind of take these snapshots with your eyes. So... I just completely loved it. And it reminds me of like going deeper and deeper into the spiritual journey, into this space that is beyond language. So I, that's where my mind goes. I love the labyrinth at the Div School. Oh, me too. How about you, love? What does this remind you of? Deeper and deeper into the labyrinth he went. I, the only thing that's coming to mind is that when I got trained at the hospital I worked at, There was a policy, a really beautiful policy, that if somebody asks you for directions at the hospital, you're supposed to say, let me take you and walk them to where they are. And I think that this is actually a policy at a lot of hospitals. Once you look for it, you'll see it. And it's a really lovely policy. And they said to me at the beginning, don't worry, you'll figure out this place well enough to be able to do it. And I never did. (laughs) I like I was always so scared that I was going to lead people in the wrong direction. I mean, Cedar sinai is a whole campus, right? But yeah, it was like, unless you are directly like responding to an emergency or an appointment, like it was your responsibility to take the person. That's so beautiful. So step four of Lectio is 
action. What action do we feel called to? And the sentence one more time is deeper and deeper into the labyrinth he went. I mean, the thing I feel called to is having more patience with the kids. I'm trying to teach them how to shuffle cards right now. We play a lot of Uno. And I am a very good shuffler of cards. I can do the like fan bridge combo. Whoa. I know. And this like lovely old woman in my life taught me how Vera, she taught me how to play gin rummy. She taught me how to cheat and she taught me how to how to <laughs> shuffle. So I make the kids practice three shuffles between rounds. But I feel myself being like, Okay, you try to not, right? Like sometimes I'll skip around because I'm like, this is so boring. And I like, I will be proud to have like been the person who taught them how to do this thing. I've told them about Vera. Like, mm. you know, it like feels like this lovely thing in my life, even though it's about car shuffling. <laughs> but I just feel like I need to give in to the labyrinth of that and never skip around and never get short with them about it. It's really boring watching someone learn how to shuffle. <laughs> it's boring to watch most people learn anything. <laughs> yeah, I know. It just makes me so impressed with all teachers, honestly. I would never have that patience. Yeah. What about you, Casper? What What do you feel called to? Deeper and deeper into the labyrinth he went. You know, I feel like I've been living with this sense of like that there are goals to be achieved or like milestones to hit in life at the moment. And like I've missed a couple, right? Like things haven't quite worked out in a, in a couple of projects or ideas. And I want to change the way I'm thinking about how life happens instead of like hitting these markers and and move instead to this idea of like going deeper and deeper into a labyrinth, right? Like that there's not just because it's more gentle, but I, I think it's more accurate of like what life is really about in terms of the people we love and the meaning we can make together. Um, so it's not it's not a specific like action. It's more an orientation to all actions. Yeah, just to hold on to that sense of like a, a going deeper and deeper into the labyrinth of life. That's beautiful. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by Redfin. Let's say for some reason, you can't get back to Grimmauld Place, so you need to find a new home. If you're like me, you would go to Redfin. Redfin updates their listings every two minutes and sends you personalized recommendations, so finding the home that's perfect for you has never been easier. If you see something you like, just book a tour straight from the app. And when you're ready to buy, an experienced local Redfin agent can guide you through the whole process. And if you're looking to sell, Redfin agents know how to get you the best price possible for your home. That's because they sell twice as many homes as other agents. With a listing fee as low as 1%, Redfin's fees are half of what others often charge, which means you'll have more money to put toward your next home. They even have a function where Trelawney will tell you whether or not she can see you in this house. Redfin. It's how Molly found the burrow. Download the Redfin app to get started. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Our voicemail this week is from Julia, who sent us this voicemail on Christmas Day. Hi, Harry Potter and the Sacred Text team. My name is Julia. I'm calling from Ontario, Canada. I'm calling you on Christmas Day today. Um, just as I was sitting down in my relaxing afternoon to consider watching a cheesy Christmas movie on Netflix, and it reminded me of an experience I had last week while I was listening to the end of book six, actually on your podcast and thinking a lot about themes of love and death um, as I was having this experience. So I work as a nurse in hospice palliative care, caring for patients at the end of their life. Um, and I had a patient who for several days was, was slowly declining and their spouse was there at the bedside for five days straight um, due to COVID restrictions right now, unfortunately, we were only allowed one visitor per patient and they had to be in full PPE. So this person was there for five days straight in a gown and gloves, a mask, a face shield, sleeping in that, sitting with their loved one, just with those barriers, um, and this grief all alone. And as they were there for many days straight, they just had these cheesy Christmas movies playing nonstop on the TV. Um, and so I was reminded of that today as I sat down in my peace and quiet with my family around me and remembered that this person is going to have a very different Christmas than I am. And I wanted to offer them a blessing and a blessing to anybody else who has to deal with mixed emotions and grief and loss alongside the peace of of knowing their loved one is comfortable um and anyway i know the holiday season is a hard time for a lot of people and so i wanted to acknowledge that and offer a blessing thank you so much for making this podcast um bye julia i think part of what i love about your voicemail is we're just going to have to have a different visual of what death looked like for all these years or this year, I guess, but of like this spacesuit, like distance sitting with someone. I guess I just love picturing this of this devoted partner in the spacesuit trying to take care of themselves by having a Christmas movie on and trying to take care of someone else. I feel like it's something that's going on a lot across the country right now. And I appreciate you drawing that picture for us. Thank you, Julia. Well, as Vanessa mentioned up top, we're going to start sharing the names of people who have died due to COVID, uh, loved ones, parents, friends of, of listeners and, and members of our community. 
So today, we remember Keith Wilson, who died aged 96, was a grandfather and a retired lawyer. Dean Weaver, a father of four and a community builder. Carolyn Dural, who was 62, a beloved university dean. John McDaniel, who was 60, father of two and an Ohio State football fanatic. Natalie Paisley, who was 86, mother of seven and a grandmother of 23. And Jessica Bratton, who was 25 and a single mother of a four-year-old. May they rest in peace. Something that Jews say here is, may their memory be a blessing. Mm, That's beautiful. Which we're now going to offer some blessings. Who would you like to bless this week, Casper? I want to bless Ron. I I just love him so much in this chapter. And, you know, it's because he asks about the house elves and the Hermione kiss, but he also learns how to speak Parseltongue and opens the entrance to the Chamber of Secrets. And it just it just reminded me that, you know, he hasn't been taking classes, like he doesn't have a tutor, right? He's just been listening, he's been learning. And I think I have often dismissed Ron's capacity to grow and to learn. And this chapter is such a reminder that each of us probably have untapped capacities and potential that we don't even know about ourselves. And so I want to bless Ron for like stepping into that. And and for all of us, not necessarily that we have to do anything right now, but just to remember that we are each probably capable more than, than what we think ourselves to be. So a blessing for Ron. How about you, Vanessa? I want to bless Hermione and I want to bless her for two things. One is that like, I think sometimes it feels like we try hard to be good and it like happens into a void. And I would just say like Hermione constantly tries to be good and it's just inspired Ron in ways that I don't think she would have guessed. And so I would just say like goodness is never going into a void. But two, I think kissing first is one of the bravest things that you can do. <laughs> and Hermione's just the bravest. So that's why she's a Gryffindor. Yep. Living into her full Gryffindorness by going for the kiss. Well, friends, you've been listening to Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You can find listeners who are discussing this episode in the Facebook Common Room. And please join our local groups and come and join the community of people supporting us on Patreon. We could not make this podcast without each and every one of you. Thank you. You can always leave us a review on iTunes, send us a voicemail, and help us make our new podcast launching in just a couple months at patreon.com slash notsorrypod. We named it. It's called The Real Question. Next week, we're going to be reading Chapter 32, The Elder Wand, through the theme of contentment. This episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text was produced by Not Sorry Productions. Our executive producer is Ariana Nettleman, and our music is by Ivan Paisau and Nick Bull. We are distributed, as always, by Acast. This week, we'd like to thank Julia for her voicemail, the other Julia for being great, Nikki Zoltan, Megan Kelly, and Stephanie Paulsell. Thanks, everyone. Talk to you next week. Blooper reel. Ariana just said, do some bloopers. You just said, do some bloopers. You weirdo. <laughs>